Romans chapter 11. This morning, moved to jealousy. There are two pillars of truth that have been in front of us since Romans chapter 9. God's election and God's reprobation. You've likely heard of the first and tried to get your head around an understanding of it and you might not even have heard the second word at all, reprobation. We talked about it. It's what we focused on last week. It's the non-elect, um, the reprobate, those whom God passes over and even hardens. Concerning that first pillar, God's election, if you look in Romans, if your Bible's open there, go to chapter 9, verse 11. Paul illustrated that with the twins. Jacob and Esau. And it says in verse 11, Though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. What is God's election? It's the purpose according to His choice of those who will be saved. Those that he calls. Look down to verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God's election is God's before time merciful choice of those that will be saved. And then comes God's reprobation. The non-elect. And concerning the non-elect, we have learned, and just in the last couple of times together chapter 9 verse 31 we learned it's their fault but Israel verse 31 pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law why because they didn't pursue it by faith but as though it were by works they stumbled over the stumbling stone it's their fault that they are reprobate they rejected the Messiah that's the stumbling stone that God put in their path they, they tried to become saved by their own righteousness, self-righteousness. It's their fault. But also we learn concerning reprobation, it's God's work. Look at chapter 11 now, verse 8. Just as it is written, and this is where we were just last week and the week before, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And then David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. This is God's reprobation. Their fault, but also His work in hardening the heart. God's hardening. The hardening of the hardened, it is often called. We'll always struggle with this. We'll always struggle not just with election, but with reprobation. And in many cases, worse with reprobation. It's not meant for us to fully understand it. If it were, then I suspect by now most Christians, believing in the Word of God, would have wrestled it and settled it in their minds. But the Word of God doesn't answer all our questions concerning it. But here's what we can do. We can understand what the Bible does say. And we can own our own responsibility. I think that's that much we can do. I left a dangling participle last week, uh, an unresolved point 
So let me resolve that real quickly concerning that we can understand as it regards God's reprobation, our part in it. Turn to Hebrews, just quickly, Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> and this, this should have concluded our thoughts last week and, and I didn't get there. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, God speaking, and now he quotes God's word, the Old Testament, so that's helpful to us. It's not our subject, but God speaks to us through his word. That's how he speaks. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, And saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now we can understand that, can't we? That's very plain. Don't harden your heart. Don't provoke God. Don't test Him. He will get angry. He is, in fact, the Bible says, angry every day with sin. And you will pay. You will not enter His rest. Alright, so as you consider this this idea of reprobation and the hardening of the heart, the part of the mystery that we can't unravel fully as it regards God, but we can certainly unravel this. Do not harden your heart. Chapter 3, verse 12 Instead, or by this means, take care, brethren. Take care that you do not harden your heart. Take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So so you get this picture of hardening and struggling as it regards God's role. No reason to struggle as it regards our role. We have to strive today not to allow the deceitfulness of sin in our lives and by that have our hearts hardened. Verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Everything that happened to Israel that's chronicled in the Old Testament, Paul says, happened for examples to us. And here the writer of Hebrews is making that application. Look at them and don't do what they did. Look at my elect Israel delivered already out of bondage right? Taken out of Egypt, crossed the Jordan, headed to the promised land. And what happened? Hardening of the heart. Hardening of the heart. Chapter 4, verse 1. Look at this. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. There's, this is an, a right aspect of the Christian life. Um, sometimes we just, we, we start at the, at the at the notion or the, or the truth statement that once saved, always saved. If you're a genuine believer, there's no hope of your being lost. God will see to that. Period. Okay? No, not period. Period, but not end of paragraph. 
How will God see to that? He will see to that by warning you not to let your heart grow hard. He'll see to that by putting a fear of God in you that you would not fail to enter the rest which He has promised to give you. That's how He does it. That's the purpose of these warnings. It's not the reality that it can happen, but it's the real fear that it might happen so that it won't happen. It's how He keeps us. He keeps us fearful. Uh, My mind now is racing and I want to interpose here. We've learned two things now, this point and the point this morning. And, 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 And I'll reiterate the challenge for every one of us. There is a gravitas to the Christian life. It is heavy. It is heavy in mourning and weeping over the ongoing sin in us and the sin we see around us. And it is heavy at times with a fearful wonder as to how God might in fact complete what He started in me. That's intentional. That's intentional. All right, so those two pillars of truth, God's election, God's reprobation. Now, you'll never get either of those entirely. They take you into the divine mind of God, and that's a place that can never be fully resolved in our finite understanding. We can glimpse it, and we can get the part of it that He gives us, and we need to get that part of it. We need to be responsible to respond to what He gives us in understanding and and all of its impacts. We have to actually believe the elect... And we are responsible when we reject the reprobate. So man is involved in both of those circumstances. And in the hardening of the heart, surely we are involved and we want to avoid that. Now let me say something here too uh, to give all of us. It's, it's not as large a group as we had the, earlier, of course. They're scattered now and some have gone. But, but we gather like this a lot and we gather to listen to God's Word taught. Let me, let me remind you. That is a very dangerous thing for you to do. Because right now, while that is happening, your heart is either being softened or hardened. And you need to understand that. God's Word goes out and it will never return void. It will always accomplish the purpose for which He intends. And oftentimes, and in many ways... What he intends to do with the preaching of his word is to harden human hearts. You need to know that when you gather to listen to his word. And you need to be very careful that you don't allow the deceitfulness of sin to use God's word as a hardening agent in your life. You know, that sun that softens and melts is the same sun that hardens. The difference is the soil. The difference is your heart. So where are we? Well, we're in the hardening of Israel. It's a partial hardening, we've learned. It's not a complete hardening. And now Paul turns his attention to say it's not a final hardening. Never was all Israel hardened. Paul says, I'm Israel. I wasn't hardened. I'm saved. Never was all Israel rejected. And all elect Israel will ultimately be saved. So it's not a complete hardening, and now he wants us to see it's not a final hardening. That's the present state, but that's not the final state. The nation, the collective nation of Israel is under judgment. Why are they under judgment? So here's what I want to connect in your mind. When you think about God's reprobation, which is what Paul just had us look at, and you struggle with that, and part of the reason you struggle with that is because we have this false notion that it's just random. That God just randomly decides who He'll love and randomly decides who He won't love. 
It's like maybe you did. I don't know if young people do it now, but I did it because somehow I learned to do it. You go in the field and you find that, I don't even know what it was now, flower of many leaves and petals. And what do you say? She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. You've played that game probably around junior high when you decided the others aren't icky anymore. So when we think of reprobation, we, we tend to put God in that box. I love you, I love you not. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll, 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 I'll set aside whom I'll set aside. Understand the distinction there. That's purposeless. <laughs> no purpose in that. God does nothing without a purpose. God never does anything without a purpose. He is a God of purpose. He doesn't act willy-nilly. He doesn't randomly then, listen, he doesn't randomly elect, and to Paul's point here, he doesn't randomly reprobate. So, well, how do you know? Because Paul's about to teach you. There's a purpose in the hardening. There's a purpose even in the rejection of Israel, because God doesn't do anything without a purpose. One of the reasons that God has set aside, as it were, Israel is for a purpose. And one of those reasons is what Paul's going to introduce us to. Look at, if, if you would, the purpose of God's rejection. Oh, wait a minute, if I could, go back to chapter 9 again. Let me show you the purpose in all this idea. Not just where Paul is in Romans 11, because he really is just repeating himself over and over. Let me do this real quick. One of the purposes of God's election and by that reprobation. So look at it in verse 11. The twins weren't born. Remember that? But notice it said, so that God's purpose would be shown. So there was a purpose in choosing Jacob and not Esau. So tell me, Steve, what was the purpose? Tell me, God, what was the purpose? It's right there. So you'd know he's God. The purpose given is for the purpose that his choice would stand. What Paul is essentially saying, and we said it then, is that you'll never understand God until you understand what it means to be God. And what it means to be God is you get to choose. All right, so one of the purposes in God choosing some and not others is that you would understand that He is the God who chooses. That's what Paul teaches there, to prove He's God. But also, watch this, to display His mercy. You see that in verse 15 there in chapter 9. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he says, it's up to my mercy. So one of the reasons he chooses some and not others is so you'll know he's God and he gets to do that. Secondly, so that you will see his mercy. It's an incredible act of mercy that he would choose anyone. Thirdly, to show forth the, uh, excuse me, to demonstrate his power. To demonstrate his power. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, there it is again, I raised you up. Why? To demonstrate my power in you. Why does God make these choices? Number one, so you'll know He's God and He gets to. Number two, to display His mercy. Number three, to demonstrate His power. He has the power to do it. Number four, to show forth the riches of His glory. Still in Romans 9, 21, doesn't the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? 
What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so, here's why, here's the purpose in it, to make the riches of His glory upon the vessels of mercy be realized. So this whole idea of election and reprobation doesn't happen accidentally. He's not, I love you, I don't love you, I love you, I don't love you. It has a purpose in it. Those are helpful to you. Maybe you jotted them down to prove He's God, to to display His mercy, to demonstrate His power, and to show forth the riches of His glory. So we've already been given some reason for these things. But now, knowing it's not arbitrary, knowing it has a purpose, Paul gives the other purpose. And now we're caught up. Romans 11, 11. I say then, they, the Jews, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There is a purpose in the rejection of Israel, in their stumbling and hardening. Okay, Israel rejected, hardened. There's a purpose in it. I gave you those. Now this purpose, for the saving of the Gentiles. For the saving of the Gentiles. It's right there. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What a profound purpose. Now this is actually number six in that list of seven that you've been trying to keep up. This is number six. God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation hasn't failed because the salvation of the Gentiles, which is actually now occurring, is meant to arouse in Israel an envy and a jealousy that they might ultimately be saved. That's the latter part of that verse. Look at it. To make them jealous. There is a purpose in God's rejecting of Israel. There is a purpose in their stumbling over Christ. There is a purpose in their currently abiding even under the judgment of God. There is a purpose in His intentional hardening So that they could not and would not believe. And the purpose is so that you would believe. So that by their failure, the gospel would extend beyond them to the nations. Do you see the purpose? You are the purpose. I gave you a heads up to that last week when we ended. You're the purpose. Why in the world would God, because I know He doesn't do it willy-nilly, why would God purpose to harden His own people? Answer, for your salvation. For your salvation. God is God. He can choose who He wants to save and not save. That's why He's God. And Paul is here saying in these verses that we as Christians are helping God to help Israel see Him. Which means, I hope you're listening, Israel's rejection had a purpose. What is it? The church And the church has a purpose. What is it? The saving of Israel. Which means world tilting. The church is not the end. It's the means to an end. Church is not the end. That's not the ultimate purpose. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is all about the ultimate purpose in accord with the promises of God that Israel would be saved. And we are a cog in that. We are a part of that. So the purpose is best seen if you look at the path. And look at that. I wrote all those down and I didn't even use it. The purpose is best seen in the path itself. 
The purpose, what is it, of God's hardening? Well, here it is. Watch it lay out. Don't pass over the importance of it. The purpose is to save Israel. The saving, then, of the church has a purpose beyond what you probably ever even thought about until maybe for the first time this morning. You say, well, the purpose was that I would not go to hell. The purpose was that I might live to the glory of of Christ. The purpose was that I might be useful in evangelism. The purpose was that I might learn to pursue sanctification and righteousness uh, without which no one will see God. The purpose is is that I'd get to heaven and and I would say, well, that's all good and fine, but, but what about this purpose? That you would make Israel jealous so that they might come and believe in the Messiah. Because here, in the middle of a three-chapter argument, which, by the way, is a lot of ink for anybody to spend, certainly for the Apostle Paul, he is pointing to that. That Israel's rejection had a purpose and it was you, and you have a purpose and it's them. And that's pretty cool. And actually makes a lot of sense. We, the church, are a means to an end. Do you see it? Israel's rejection, Gentiles' acceptance for Israel's salvation. We've looked into the darkness of God's wrath, the execution of His judgment against Israel. We considered it for two weeks, as hard as it is for us to imagine, but it's real. It's really real historically in 70 A.D. when he ransacked all of Jerusalem and scattered abroad the children of Israel. It's real still today as still today the people of Israel suffer. And we understand biblically under the judgment of God for rejecting the Messiah. It's a real thing. It's a dark thing. It's hard to even comprehend. You take a peek into the Holocaust, the the pouring out of an unimaginable suffering on the people of God, and you you back up from there and you see Adolf Hitler and, and all of his henchmen. But have you backed up far enough to see God doing what we just kind of interpose and look into just briefly, the hardening of Israel? The punishment for the rejection of their having killed His only Son? Can you see that in it? Paul can He wants us to see that in it. And then He wants us to see the purpose in it. That the gospel would reach to the nations. And the nations would reach to Israel. That's it. Go back to Romans chapter 4, if you would. And be reminded that Israel is the root of the church. The promise, 4.13, was made to Abraham, to his descendants, that he would be heir, look, of the world. Not through the law, but through faith. Then down in verse 16, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it might be in accordance with grace, in accordance with the purpose of God, we could interpose there and be, and be faithful, so that the promise of God will be guaranteed to the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, Israel, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of all of us, who's the father of the church. Faith rests there, even as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of Him who He believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being, watch this, that which does not exist. What is God calling into being through Abraham and his descendants that does not exist? You and me. 
All who by faith belong to Abraham is God calling into being a thing that was not. Peter makes it really clear. Don't turn there, but just listen. 1 Peter 2, 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this becomes the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed. That's, that's Paul's subject, the darkening and the hardening of Israel's heart. But he said it was for you who believe. That happened for you who believe now. Verse 9, now because of that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you can proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's trying through Israel to bring into existence something that wasn't, a nation that isn't. A people that aren't. The church. Through Israel. Through Christ. Through the gospel. The church. By faith. is connected to Israel. He'll make it clear later in chapter 11. He's going to call you a branch. And he's going to call them the root. Paul often refers this to, uh, to this as the mystery. And Paul talks about the mystery. We've talked about this. He's usually talking about the church. But not only the church, but the mystery of it all. That through Israel's rejection, the church would be. Now that's a mysterious consideration right there. And he preached that and he taught that and it got him in trouble everywhere he said that. Trouble from who? The Jews. The Jews hated it when Paul talked that way. The Jews hated it when Paul thought for even a moment that the Jews were a means to an end and the end might be the church. They hated that. So this is the path. You see the purpose being played out in the path. Let me take you through just a quick history of the early church and you'll see the path. It's in Acts chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 4, that Peter is declaring the gospel along with John and they're arrested and they have to appear before who? Israel. They have to appear before the Jews, the leaders, the Sanhedrin. And those leaders tell them, stop preaching this gospel. No. No. What are we looking for? We're looking for Israel's rejection becoming the, the purpose by which God would raise up a church from nothing. And it plays out right in front of you in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, they get beaten. They get flogged. Not just Peter and John. In fact, what it says is the Sanhedrin called together all the apostles and beat every one of them. Acts chapter 7, the Jews stoned Stephen. Who's doing all this? Israel's doing this. They didn't just crucify the Messiah. They persecuted the early church, which, listen, were almost all Jews. We'll stop this thing, they said. What a strange path, isn't it? Acts chapter 8. Saul is there in hearty agreement with putting them all to death. Verse 1. On that day when Stephen died, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And watch, they were scattered. 
doing that? You say, well, God's doing that. Well, how's He doing that? Through Israel's rejection, through Israel's hatred, through Israel's pent-up animosity, racism, and all the rest of it, they're driving the church, and with it, they're doing what? Planting the church. (laughs) Planting the church. Acts chapter 8, verse 5, Philip goes to Samaria. Those are the half-breeds. There it's still half-Jew. That's not any better. But they heard the news and they begin to believe. They're listening and they're receiving as the gospel is spread. We had the encounter still there in chapter 8 of Philip with the Ethiopian. He hears the gospel. Philip opens it up. He's baptized. Where does it go? Africa. He goes home with the gospel. Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion. Perhaps the greatest mystery of all. That God would take this persecutor of the church and use him to plant the church. By the end of chapter 9, they're after him. (laughs) They're trying to kill him. They conspired, the Bible says, to kill Paul. He ends up in Antioch. And a church is planted. And a church begins to send out. Acts chapter 13, they go through the whole region with the gospel, we're told. Paul and Barnabas then go to Iconium. And there is the gospel and the fruit and what? The Jewish resistance. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, Tertullian would later say. Let me say it this way. Israel's rejection And hatred and hard-heartedness was the seed of the early church. Casting it out to places that they would not have planned to go, had they even thought to plan to go, which they never planned to do. They didn't have a mission meeting and say, this will be a great idea, let's go to Iconium. No, they're pushed there by the Jews. They're pushed there by Israel. Acts chapter 14, in Iconium, the Jews... Verse 2, who disbelieved, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, embittered them against the brethren. Now the Jews get the Gentiles involved in the hatred of the church. Now, we'll see if history plays out. Now Rome, again, becomes a co-patriot with Israel, this time not to kill the Messiah, but this time to try to kill the church. Verse 5. Acts 14, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, well, they became aware of it and they fled. That was a smart thing to do. They fled to Lyconia. That's a great place. Well, how about Lystra and Derbe and all the surrounding region? And there they'll just keep preaching the gospel. Do you see this now? Do you see what Paul's talking about in Romans 11? That their their failure, their rejection becomes something that was not? It becomes the church. By their hand, as it were, in the human realm, but of course only by God's divine gospel. And on it goes. I skipped over chapter 10. That's a little closer to home. You can back up there. This is Peter getting a revelation from God that it's not just for Israel, it's for the Gentiles. And he learns to eat ham sandwiches for the first time. And then he goes where? He goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile. Chapter 10, verse 34, he opens his mouth and he says, I most certainly understand now. (laughs) I think that's the way you're, I I get it now. (laughs) I didn't get it before, but I get it now. 
that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Listen, friends, that's the path. That is the path the church blazes in history. And you need to understand it wasn't by accident. It was by God's divine design. And it required the rejection of Israel, of their own Messiah, to bring it to pass. We like to get around with a strong cup of coffee and, you know, think high thoughts and ask curious questions. And I think there's benefit to that. You know, think deeply about things. And sometimes in that, in that circle, maybe among Christians, a question is asked, what if Israel had not rejected them? What if Israel had not rejected their Messiah? Well, first of all, that's not possible, right? But yet we know that. Let's still answer the question. Well, let me answer it for you. As far as Romans 11 goes, there would be no church. That's for certain. Because their rejection is what produced the church. Ultimately, Paul would write to Rome this book. And his heart still remains heavy for Israel. And he wants the Jews to know. And he wants the Gentile Christians to know. And he wants us to know that though you see that path, God's purpose for Israel has not changed. Because that's the path so far, but it's not the end. Notice the text again. Verse 11, Romans 11, 11. By their transgression, salvation came to the Gentiles. By the way, a Gentile is simply a non-Jew. It's not a race of people or a peculiar group. It's not the Greeks and the Romans. It's not the Indians and the Himalayans or whatever they're called. It's any non-Jew. It's the nations. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the nations. The church, something that was not, now is. And look, to make them jealous. The church remains in the hands of the Gentiles still today. And still today that purpose exists. And that is to make Israel jealous. We aren't the end. So while we can see the path, right? God's choosing of Israel. God's, Israel's rejection of God. Uh, by that, God's raising up the church of people who were not a people, who are now a people. But we can't see the last part. That by that, Israel would be made jealous. I can see those three, but I can't see the fourth one. Why can't I see the fourth one? Very simple. It hasn't happened yet. It's hard for us to see what hasn't happened yet. It's pretty easy to see what has happened. It's really hard to see what hasn't happened yet. What hasn't happened yet is this jealousy that drives Israel back to God. It hasn't happened yet. But Paul says it will happen. Nothing has happened, he says, to Israel that would change that happening. It will happen. By the way, listen technical matter, most of the Reformed tradition in which we worship together as Reformed Baptists in our tradition rejects what I just said. Most of the Reformed tradition does not see a future realization of the nation Israel being once again God's blessed. Most of the Reformed tradition doesn't see that. No, they see the church as becoming Israel and therefore the church is the what? The end of it all. I want to say with, with as much humility as I can, I do not understand how they can't, can't see that. 
I don't understand how they can say that, that the church is the end, and read this, which says clearly the church isn't the end. I don't understand my, my greatly respected, even contemporary, but mostly dead, reformed theologians who can't see that. But they can't. Most of them say it's not there. But some Reformed tradition do see it there. Uh, one that you may know the name. I mentioned him to you occasionally. James Montgomery Boyce. Classically Reformed. Worshipping in the Reformed tradition among the Presbyterians. The great pastor. Great pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Long now dead. He is not the church. Listen to what he wrote. Listen to these words. In view of Paul's clear statements here talking about this very verse, and throughout Romans 11, I cannot see how so many Reformed theologians of our day reject the idea of a future time of blessing for Israel. I know why they do it. They don't like the details of prophecy that some have worked out. They, they argue against the dispensationalists. I know why they do it. They don't like the implied theology of it, he says. To their way of thinking, any future blessing of Israel as a nation must be a backward step. It would be a, a regression in God's plan. Spiritual realities in Christ have replaced the Jewish types that pointed to them. The church has replaced Israel. In this view, the church becomes the new Israel. The old Israel is superseded forever. He's saying, I understand why they think that way, but not in light of these texts. How can they affirm that, he says, in view of Paul's teaching here? Paul's not talking about spiritual Israel in these chapters. He's talking about the Jews as a nation. And when he asks the question, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery, his answer is as emphatic as it can be. He says, no, God forbid. It was inconceivable to Paul that God would cast Israel aside. Because to do so would mean that God would be breaking His promises and He couldn't do that and still be God. Amen? That's it. <laughs> but you need to know, as a technical matter, most of the Reformed tradition rejects that. And some here reject that. We don't force a, an agreed eschatology of all end times in order to be a, a faithful participating member here at the church. But I, I can't believe that in light of this. The text that's in front of us. Unless you just forget how to read your Bible or decide you can read it a different way sometimes and another way another time, Paul can't be clearer. His language couldn't be more plain. Not just in this verse, but in the rest of the entire chapter. So when you look at this path, you will have to admit there are no real problems with it. If you'll finish it, what's the path again? God made a promise to a people that He made Israel. They rejected His plan and crucified His Son, nailing Him to a tree. Their rejection extended the blessings proffered by His sacrifice to the Gentiles. And by that... Israel will be moved one day to jealousy and will be saved. That's the path. Promise made, promise kept. By a path that no one would imagine if Paul didn't teach us.
Now I have to stop here. But I want to challenge you at this point, if I could, and it's not about your eschatology. It's about this notion that the church would somehow make them jealous. Does our conduct in the church lead to that? In other words, do we manifest a life that would cause the Jews to be jealous for what we have? More honestly, may I challenge you, does your conduct in grace lead anyone to want what you have? Does your Christian life make anybody jealous? Or does your conduct and so often the conduct of the church do the very opposite? Does it turn people off? Does it push them further away? Now, of course, it's never owing just to us. They are blind, right? But we must be sure we're not about the business of blinding them. We must be about the business of shining a light into a dark place and creating them a desire for that. We know the gospel, they don't. We know the good news, they don't. We must both share the gospel and, listen to me, adorn the gospel in such a way that they would be jealous for it. That's the purpose of the church. We're not an end in itself. We are a means to an end that the Jews, indeed all the nations, would come to Christ. It's why we exist. And so often, instead of showing forth the attractiveness of the Christian way, we as Christians have characteristically treated the world with derision, with hatred, with malice, with judgment, with all manner of disdain. And historically, we've done it worse to the Jews than anybody else. I'm talking about the church. I'm not talking about Hitler. May that not be. May it never be among us. My prayer is, God, don't let that ever be me. May your grace, alive in me, create a longing for those who see me. That's what Romans 11, 11 teaches regardless of how you view the future for Israel. Father, make us a light that shines clear and bright. Let us shine the light of the gospel, adorning the gospel for the purpose for which you gave us the gospel. And that is the spreading of the gospel. That all who you have chosen might in fact believe. Help us not to be an impediment to that. Under some caveat of it is not the man who runs or the man who works, but it is God but rather to understand because that is true. Because I am a recipient of God's electing, saving grace, because of what you have done in me, 
may I be all the more faithful to manifest the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you shine me. That's our prayer. In Christ's name. And for the sake of Israel. Amen.